0: Coming at you from Verge Headquarters, I'm Matt Hunkler with Powderkeg Igniting Startups Episode 21. Today, I'm talking with a CEO who's building a software business with not just a valuation north of a billion dollars, but a business on track to do more than a billion dollars in annual revenue.
1: I did my first startup as a CEO of a 20, 30-person company. Boy, I tell you, there were some dark days in the middle of that, and it was really important to not internalize that as, I suck. I am failing, and you've got to have a humility to understand your place in all this. You're trying to create change
0: in a world of chaos. That's Samir Delakia, an experienced tech CEO with a passion for building strong teams and big businesses. This is such a cool conversation because Samir and I connected in New York City to talk all about SenGrid, which is the company he's been leading since 2014. Now that business has grown to more than 50,000 paying customers and is now one of the largest email software companies in the world. That journey and the lessons learned along the way coming up on Powder Keg Igniting Startups where each week we share the untold stories of innovation, leadership and technology beyond Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and I'm the founder and CEO of Verge, which is a network of local communities with global reach for tech entrepreneurs, investors, and top talent outside of Silicon Valley. And as my team and I have grown Verge over the past seven years, we've hosted more than 1,000 entrepreneurs at our events around the world. Those founders have gone on to raise more than $500 million in capital collectively, and they're disrupting industries, creating wealth, and changing the world. That's why we started this podcast. Each guest has their own powder keg full of raw skills and talents that's ignited their startups and fueled their growth. These are their stories. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Hunkler. That's H-U-N-C-K-L-E-R. And let me know how Verge and Powderkeg and I can help you with your entrepreneurial journey. In the meantime, please make sure you subscribe to the Keg wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, all the major podcast outlets, including, of course, iTunes. You can find us on iTunes using our handy link, powderkeg.co slash iTunes. And using that link, you can subscribe, make sure you don't miss a single episode, not a single conversation that we have here. And I just want to give a huge shout out really quick to all of you powder kegists out there who have already left us a review. It's your feedback and sharing that helps us reach so many more people. And this community that we're growing is so inspiring. It's what keeps me coming back here every single day, making sure we're bringing the best guests to you with every episode. Thank you. This week's episode of Powderkeg is brought to you by Developer Town. Now these guys are amazing. They've been our partners for literally probably more than six years. They've helped so many of the startups in the Verge community reach scale, get traction. Uh, But one of the things you might not know about Developer Town is that they actually help enterprise companies move more like a startup. And actually corporate innovators often work with Developer Town to explore software solutions that actually supporting their core business needs. Now, by leveraging their years, literally years of experience working with startups, Developer Town is able to help companies better understand the viability of potential software solutions and quickly bring them to market. So, so important. Developer Town has created a proven sprint to market process so that large enterprises can move like a startup. You can find out more about them at developertown.com slash powder Again, that's developertown.com slash powder Check them out. Developer Town, start something. I'm so eager to dive into this conversation with our guest today, but first let me give you a little bit of background because I think it's gonna provide some helpful context for understanding the stories and advice that are shared in this particular interview. Our guest today, of course, is Samir Dalakia, who has over 20 years of experience in successfully bringing high-growth disruptive cloud and enterprise software products to market. He, of course, is the CEO at SendGrid, which is a software platform that sends literally more than a billion emails per day through their technology. They have over 1.7 billion unique recipients and have more than 50,000 paying customers. Prior to joining SendGrid, he served as the group vice president and general manager of the cloud platforms group at Citrix, huge technology company. And prior to that, he worked for 12 years at Trilogy, where he held key leadership roles in sales, business development, product management, and helped grow that company from a startup to a $300 million technology business. He's got his bachelor's and master's degree from Stanford University and an MBA from Harvard Business School. He's got that technical training and sort of the more traditional training, as well as literally decades of experience in the software world. In this interview, we talk a little bit about email and the state of email software, which is particularly interesting because it's a market you might not understand exactly just how big the implications are onto everything else from social media to other marketing platforms to just how we do business day to day. But we also talk a lot about building company culture and how to lead as an executive, whether it's at a startup or at a high growth enterprise company, we are going to cover a lot. So I hope you guys are ready for this. Let's set this thing off. Uh, Samir, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to connect with me here at WeWork in New York. Have you been here before? I have not. I have not. But this is cool. What a beautiful setup. It's, it's pretty awesome, right? Like yeah. This is great. <laughs> this is, I think, our fourth meeting room we checked out this morning for, before <laughs> this interview. I think we found just right one. I feel Perfect. like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Our porridge is good. I'm excited. <laughs> good. Well, I'm here to ask the tough questions, Samir. All right. Um, Shoot. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the defensive right right off the bat. Right. Hit yeah. me. Um, clearly, email yeah. is dead from everything I've seen from the I mean, headlines. Clearly. <laughs> uh, how, well, how do you uh, how do you deal with that? Being clearly in a dying industry and, yeah, it's, and struggling to take advantage of, of a dying industry, it's so it's so challenging. I tell you, <laughs> uh, it's remarkable. Our email volume
1: um, year over year is only growing fifty percent. It's <laughs> clearly <laughs> it's dying. Right? Um, it's remarkable that uh, you know that. There's no question that that perception is broad. I get it every time we talk about the business. Um, to folks that are outside of the world uh, of email, mm-hmm. and it's and so, totally understandable. You know, I'll hear questions like, well, gosh, you know, my, my teenage kids, you know, they only text and don't even know what email is, or they're on Snap, or they're on Messenger, or whatever, and so, you know, email must die, and, and uh, you know, look, I, I think it's still, um, particularly in the Western world, is still the online identifier. It is still the way, when you sign up for services, by and large, it's still your email address, the way you don't change your phone number. Uh, you don't change your email address as often as you change your phone number. <laughs> I mean, so you know, uh, uh, but you probably don't change your email address as often as you change your physical home address, right? I mean, think about yeah. like I've had the same email addresses for twenty five years now. <laughs> like, wow. You know, you don't know, right? Like it's it's not
0: something you um, you change a lot. So, um, well, you guys are sending more emails daily now than tweets on Twitter. Is that a correct stat that I... Over I two times the volume. Over two times oh, the volume. So we send... Not just over, but more than twice. By a lot. Wow. By factors. Wow. yeah
1: So it's 1.3 billion emails every day. Wow. Uh, which is about two times, more than two times the volume of Twitter, about ha- which is about half a billion tweets a day. Jeez. Um, and we're touching 1.7 billion unique email recipients, which is like basically, you know, plus or minus half the world's online population you know, we're doing that on behalf of nearly 50,000 paying customers. Uh, it's good to have paying customers. Yeah, which is also helpful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, nearly 50,000, you know, you got a lot of organizations and companies who still recognize the incredible importance and efficiency of using email as a channel to reach your end users. I mean, so if you talk to, you know, the entrepreneurs and the startup communities yep. that, you know, that, that are listening in here... You know, they know you gotta. You want to keep people engaged. You want to. You want to send out your updates and how are we doing? And hey, I got this new feature. And you know, I got to make sure I'm building a community of people that care about what I'm doing. And email is always going to be one of, at least one of, the major mechanisms or channels through which you do that. And um, does that mean that new modes of communication, whether it's you know a push message to your phone or an in-app message in a mobile app or a browser notification on a desktop? Uh, aren't important of course not you know in our our view it's an and not an or. absolutely you know uh, but but if you were to ask most marketers you know what do you use what's the most uh, roi efficient channel for you to use to go reach your your users subscribers customers consumers whatever um, they're calling it It,
0: they'll always cite email absolutely you know it's 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 definitely the most powerful channel for our community at verge and, and the powder cake podcast yeah, I absolutely it. it. So engaged. Who in your ecosystem, maybe they don't even use SendGrid, but like yeah. what emails, um, well, I don't know if that's possible because it seems like everyone uses SendGrid, <laughs> but who in your ecosystem is doing email marketing right? Mm. It could be a startup, it could be an enterprise company. Yeah, you
1: know, I, I love, um, we have so many great customers to highlight. Uh you know, some that I think do it really well, um, some of our music customers, Pandora mm. and Spotify, um, I think do an extraordinary job of leveraging technology to drive engagement and growth within their consumer base. And yeah. at the end of the day, like if you look at the SendGrid mission statement, that w- that's what it says. You won't see the word email in there, it'll say delivering customer communications that drive engagement and growth. And mm-hmm. because the email channel is just the channel, but the end goal that we want to orient the, our entire company around is the reason we do what we do is to help our customers engage and grow their business. Yeah. And nice. so in the case of like a Pandora and a Spotify, what those yes. guys do brilliantly is take in a gazillion different data points. That's a lot f- of data points. A lot of, I mean gazillion, <laughs> you know, it's a very technical term. Yeah. A gazillion data points to figure out the next email I'm gonna to send the to Matt about what he should listen to next yeah. is gonna incorporate you know what you've been doing in their app, what songs you're listening into, you know, what who else does Matt look like and what are they interested in, and then they tailor that email mm-hmm. specifically to you based on everything they know about you. Yeah. And then they send that through SendGrid And I just think that you know of course everything about it is great in terms of the layout, it's beautiful, the imagery, the the text, the taglines, and the subject, and the subject lines, to get you to to go into it in the first place. Mm-hmm. They do a great job with all that. Uh, but I think that what's most compelling about it is that they've found a way to make it very personal and tailored. And at the end of the day, as we move forward and as uh, to get the most out of this email channel and this generation, it is about being specific. It's about feeling like you're getting a personal conversation via that email. And you're not one of a lot of people receiving the same generic message. Um, I think the people that are using email marketing well are recognizing that. I think those are
0: two examples of
1: people that are doing that.
0: I really like those examples because you hit on a couple of things that are obviously important. The personalization, yeah, uh, but then also the intelligence behind it, mm-hmm. meaning right time, yeah. Uh, so it's not too creepy, yeah. but <laughs> because there there is that element, there is right yeah. where it's like I just was in a shopping cart, I abandoned it, yeah. and now fifteen seconds later, you like, come back. But <laughs> maybe a little too, yeah. maybe a little too uh, in your face. Yeah. But if I got that same email the next day with say a ten percent discount.
1: Totally fine, and that's you know a lot of what we focus on with our customers is we're like, look, we we believe in this channel. Mm-hmm. We think it's highly effective. Um, you know, Digital Marketing Association cited a stat. They're like, every dollar that you spend in email, you'll get a thirty-eight dollar return on average. Like, I it's like those returns. It's a highly highly efficient, effective <laughs> channel, but um, that channel will get destroyed if people are getting spammed. Yep, right. If you're getting unwanted mail you just stop using the medium, right? You'd stop checking. And so we're really vigilant about our customers sending wanted mail where we watch their you know, uh, engagement rates, opens and clicks, their unsubscribes. How many people are saying, nope, I didn't want this. What percentage of the time are the ISPs dropping the mail coming in, into the spam folder? And if those numbers get out of a very small tolerance, very like single digit, tiny percentages, we will actually terminate customers. We fire 15% of customers of any given cohort in a month. Based on our, our, our view of the signals, you're not demonstrating best practices in how you're using email. It's not engaged, wanted
0: mail. Yeah, I, I want to make sure we dive into that because I'm, yeah. I'm sure you've got a ton of perspective yeah. on that, from deliverability to uh, engagement. But I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, as a founder, yeah. right, it, maybe you add a startup. Email, you're saying, is the most engaged marketing channel. I I would corroborate that. But as a founder, I'm making sure payroll happens, I'm making sure, uh, you know, People are are getting engaged with the company, yeah. making sure customers are taken care of, <laughs> and you're telling me I need to also do email marketing. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about how startups can start to leverage email marketing if they're not doing it or maybe they're barely doing it. Yeah, just getting started. You know, one of the things we're we're doing a lot and, and
1: SendGrid is a company that literally was built on startups. Yeah. Like that's how uh we it and they remain our lifeblood. So it came out of TechStars Accelerator, right? It started as a, yeah. a as you know obviously a startup ourselves 2009 through TechStars credible uh kind of training program for our founders who were three developers who faced the same problem they were trying to get started up and what they the, the experience they had, had in previous companies that that perhaps some of your listeners might have uh experienced back in the day was every single application you build, every website, e-commerce what anything you're going to go try to do um, is going to have to communicate with the user in an automated fashion. And so these developers were like, you know, we wanted to build this e-commerce business back in the mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. And I had to make sure that when they signed in, I could send them a confirmation email. If they forgot their password, when you hit that forgot password button, the app has to do something. It has to yep. send an email back. Or if they click buy, it has to send them a, a, a receipt. Right, like in in order to do that, they had to go set up the email infrastructure in the back end and the complexity of that is just bizarrely, you would just wouldn't think that that's why would that be a hard thing to do? You gotta go set up servers and understand the SMTP protocol and understand what an SPF record is and what is DKIM signing mean? Like literally it's like <laughs> yeah. this random, yeah. you know, black art of email. Yeah. <laughs> the average developer, to your point, and founder that's trying to build a business. Care less about. They're like, I don't want to learn all this random esoteric email crap. I just want to get the email. I want it to work. I just want it to work. I just want yeah. to get there. And so the founders are like, okay, I got to get this right. We're going to expose our API as a service. So the founders and developers, like your uh, and, and um, uh, startup CEOs uh, in your listener base, are like, okay, we have got to make this simple so that it's just not a. They need to worry about all the other things you described. Yeah. Not making sure that the email gets to the inbox. At a basic level for transactional stuff. And so, where we start with startups always is plug our API in for the automated system generated emails. It takes no human involvement, and I know you've got 90 other things to do, so just make sure your developer plugs in our API in the back end so that anytime they're doing something um, on your site or in your app and op- that can be a system triggered thing. Now, as you as the startup kind of moves along its life cycle and CEO starts to, you know, what the idea is taking fold, then, then it really is now, okay, now I can take advantage of this channel. How do I start to engage people in and around this business, my customer base, either for acquisition or retention? And that's really how you think, you know, you, I kind of split it into those two buckets of, are you going to use the channel to acquire more customers? Uh, or is it about those that have already been engaging with you and you want to retain them and get them to come back and buy more yep. uh, or engage more? Um, Obviously, we believe you ought to use email channel for both. It's just a question of where you are in your life cycle. For a startup, you're probably going to be very focused on the acquisition side. How do I get more people into the house to understand what I'm doing? Yeah. And then over time, use retention. So we added a capability on top of our um, automated uh, system-generated API-based infrastructure that is an email marketing application. And So that thing is just super simple for... Developers, um, uh, sorry, CEOs and founders, like literally startup CEOs. We have a percent. we everything we do at Sanger, we do by personas. Yeah. Right? User personas, let's build for that person. So we have a persona named Jared, who is our startup CEO. Um, That's and good. We build, and Jared is one of the profiles that we build this email marketing product for, because we know they have 18 other things to go do. Right. They can go into that tool and create simple buckets or segments of people that they want to message to and send campaigns to, and then the tool just makes it really easy to go look at who's engaging and when, and takes care of it. it's all dynamic. So it, it makes it easy so that a startup CEO founder that's got a lot on their plate doesn't have to spend a lot of time on it. But I would encourage them to spend some time on it.
0: So I love that you have the email tools for Jared. Yeah. When did you launch that part of SendGrid? Yeah. Historically, it's been mostly email tools, right? It's right. It email API based. That's right. So that you're absolutely right. So that, by the way, that persona, Dewey. We call Dewey the developer. Nice.
1: And Dewey the developer, like the yeah, Dewey the developer was the, uh, has been the core of the business for many years around that API. So they plug our API into the back of their application. So it's literally embedding in their code. And that, that really has been the history of the company. About maybe a year and a half ago now, Okay. Uh, we launched this email marketing product
0: on top of this infrastructure. I have to apologize. I missed that when that happened. So it was, Lord. It, was, it was only in researching this you know, we interview did, that I discovered. That, yeah. Wow. They okay. do some marketing stuff too. Yeah. And
1: we, we've been. Um, You know, we're just starting to dial up the noise around what we've done here. We're really excited about it. We've already signed up uh, over 5,000 customers. That's great. (laughs) Congrats. (laughs) Thanks, man. It's been great on, on on that new product. Yeah. And what's even more remarkable is that the vast majority of those customers are actually net new to SendGrid. So it's not that they were using our API product and then this thing came along like, oh, I'll use that too. That's happening in reasonable percentages also. Yep. But the majority have never, had, we're not, our new to SendGrid, we're not using the, because they were, you know, the Dewey, the developer. They don't know Dewey, the developer. Yeah. developers down the hall. They don't like marketing. <laughs> uh, so the, the marketers are finding this tool and saying, oh, this is a beautiful, simple, easy to use product. It's a great value. And because of SendGrid's heritage in the infrastructure side, we can do scale and reliability in a fairly unique
0: way. Right? they are just like not that many. Two extre- you kind of glossed over it, but yeah. those are like the most important things in you know, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, our our and scale help. and reliability. Well, deliverability being kind of synonymous. Well, and, and, yeah, absolutely. And we, and we leverage all of that expertise, I would say, that we've
1: developed over the past seven years. All the relationships we have with the ISPs, all the knowledge of what best practices are, all the guardrails and defenses that we put in place against mm-hmm. bad senders, against spammers and fishers, all of that is 100% leverageable. Into that new category around email marketing. That's great. Uh, and so we and for B two C marketers in particular, who want to be able to do scale. Yeah. We could do we could do scale for them. What they consider scale is typically very small for us. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Like we have right. customers that would send over a billion emails every month. That's great. <laughs> so you know whatever list size they have is not going to strain not the a problem. system at all.
0: <laughs> so. It- going into a new product in some ways is a new product right because you've got a new customer it is oh, absolutely yeah. Um, yeah and and you've got to develop this brand awareness around mm-hmm. an entirely different thing where yeah. you know you used to see only you know SendGrid only at like hackathons and right. more developer oriented yeah. conferences yeah in terms of marketing i'm seeing you know SendGrid in some places it, you know it all makes sense now yeah why i've been seeing SendGrid more frequently yeah. because i'm I'm Jared. Right, right. I'm not Dewey, the developer. Yes. That's right. Um, and so I was like, why? That's good. Working. But what the challenge there being? Yeah. You've got this really strong brand on the developer tools Absolutely. front. Yeah. How how are you going about extending that into? Oh, but we're also good for marketers. Yeah. I, it's a great uh, it's a great question because one we
1: it's very important to the business that we retain the strength of our um, focus on and brand in the yeah. Dewey, the developer world. Like that has always been um, SendGrid's uh, bread and butter and there's no chance that we're gonna relinquish that. That is, you know, the dance with the one that brung yet. Yeah, we're, de- or, <laughs> we're not gonna forget who, who got us here. Yeah, uh, So we continue to invest an extraordinary amount in the Dewey, the developer landscape. Now, to your question, how do you then leverage that strength and that brand uh, in, with a different persona, in a different buyer, in a different market? Uh, okay, that's that can be tough. <laughs> you know, the, the thing that, that we love about it yeah. is as I said that the leverage we get. One the, the leverage mm-hmm. in the brand is still there's a, there's a a brand halo around SendGrid and email. Like people do when they think when they hear SendGrid, the first thing they will think is email not developed. Yep. It'll probably be a developer thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But there's a halo around the notion of email. And even for the you know the tens of thousands of companies that use us, when we go and meet with many of them, I'll end up going in and meeting. I remember when I first joined the company, it was about two and a half years ago, you know, of course the first thing you do is see you say, I want to go talk to customers. Yeah. And I hear how we're doing, what are we doing great? What do we need to get better at? And they set up the meetings, and so I'm assuming I'm gonna go step in and meet lots of Jareds, yeah. lots of Deweys, right? And it turned out that I met lots of Olivia's. Olivia is our multi-hatted marketer. Person. Uh, okay. And I, we met lots of Olivias. I was like, Oh, this is interesting. And they said, Well, yeah, yeah. Do we set you guys up when we were, you know, a startup, five guys in a garage? But ultimately, somewhere in the company's life cycle, they hired me, Olivia, the marketer, because the business was taking off and we needed to be more proactive about our marketing communications. And I said, Well, what are we doing to communicate with our end users? And they usually said, Well, not much, but we are using sending these emails. System-generated emails, yes. through SendGrid. So they, so the Olivias know who we are, kind of in that hey, brand halo. Yeah. Of uh, oh yeah yeah yeah. Well, I think our Dewey set you guys up, and and it just works. And those, I, you know, there's no better uh, phrase to a <laughs> yeah. CEO when you hear your customer say, "Oh yeah, our other guys," so they just say, "It just works," and that's a beautiful thing. Um, so you get this very positive disposition there. Now. In order to really leverage it, we clearly gotta go, we're gonna have to do a lot more marketing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're we're dialing up uh, our spend, our volume, our presence, um, and language around the marketing persona. Like, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that we're building a multi-hundred million dollar business with our Dewey the developer, API, in, uh, transactional email business. We're gonna build a multi-hundred million dollar business around email marketing
0: yeah. that is right on top of it. And when you say that multi-hundred million, are you talking about, Total valuation, like do you see this as a billion dollar company, or do you see this as you know another metric that you're shooting for? Yeah, no, I, I believe that
1: these are these are big markets mm-hmm. that give us the opportunity to build towards, and this is a decade long vision, right? Sure. We're not a, this is not the kind of thing that you expect to hit next year. It's your BHAG. <laughs> it's our BHAG, Yeah. Um, but I, I and I told the company we have our annual kickoff um, every year we go to Mexico. Uh, we take the entire company down and uh, get everybody both celebrate what we accomplished together in the last year and get aligned on the plan and the strategy and the initiatives that we got to execute in the, in the next year. And as part of that that trip and that messaging, we've got to move beyond a, a view towards a BHAG that was, let's create a, a billion-dollar valuation company, towards a BHAG of, we're going to go create a billion-dollar revenue company. Wow. And it's going to take us a decade or more. Yeah. I don't know how long it's going to take us. but. That's where we're going because the markets that we play in now, mm-hmm. and that we can envision extending to over the future, we'll absolutely be able to build a billion-dollar revenue company. It's on us. Yeah. Opportunities there, yep. and you know whether we get there or not is entirely dependent on our execution.
0: Um, but the but the opportunity is there. It's an exciting goal. Yeah, and I want I want to come back to the team team section of, of what you just yeah. talked about because taking the whole team of what like 350 employees yeah. uh, to Mexico is um, I don't think every tech company is doing <laughs> the kind of retreat uh, so I want to make sure we talk sure. about that you yeah. you talked a lot about the markets right yeah. and how the market is moving um, are there other markets maybe in entirely different industries maybe it's not even in tech hmm. that you could correlate to how email is evolving in the marketing yeah. world yeah <laughs> um, so
1: I'll I'll tell you the the, the macro storyline uh, or, or I guess picture that that I I orient to and again shared with our uh, the whole company when we talked uh, at our kickoff was about the history of enterprise software. So you know if I zoom out for a little bit yeah. to your point about like how other markets evolve and how is that how can that be instructive to uh, Semgrid and our strategy, um, you know in the macro. Uh, when I if you take a look at enterprise software over the last 30, 40 years, it has had a history of creating multiple multi-billion dollar revenue businesses within every business function. Okay? So it started off in like in the late 60s when computers actually were becoming useful and not taking up whole rooms like this. Right. They're like, hey, what are these computer things you're good at? Oh, they're pretty good at math. there's zeros and ones. How can we apply that to business? Well, accounting. It was all about lots of math, and we got lots of people with pencils behind their ears. Let's go, <laughs> let's go see if we can automate some of this stuff. And so every company started to build homegrown accounting software. And then this company called McCormick and Dodge came along in the late '60s, and like, hey, we're going to go build a single one, and it's going to be great because we'll get feedback from all of these companies. And it'll always our pace of innovation will be faster than your homegrown thing, It's sort of the the business case for why. Enterprise software should exist. That began the birth of enterprise software, and they went through literally function by function. So back then, it was accounting was first, and then you know Oracle Financials. You know, n number of years later becomes a multi-billion-dollar business, and, and and it just goes in subsequent generations, when you end up with the PayPal's and the Stripes and the AnaPlans and Adaptive Insights, and yeah, you know, there's a whole. Uh, it just the innovation continues and generation after generation. That's usually about every decade or. Every ten to fifteen years, yep. a new crop of multi-billion-dollar businesses is created in these functions. So first finance,
0: mm-hmm.
1: then HR. Right. So uh, McCormick and Dodge, late sixties. Then they're like, oh, hey, these computers are getting better at routine things, like routinized tasks, and they can store data. Somebody said, hey, how about payroll? That's a, like that's a routine thing. Happens every month, and uh, we can store this information instead of in files, filing cabinets. <laughs> You know, we're, we're gonna put this in the computer. This is really nice. <laughs> this is really nice. this is kind of cool. Yeah. Right. And, you, and an ADP type company is born. ADP and Reynolds and Reynolds both become multi-billion dollar companies. Yeah. And then another guy named Dave Duffield comes along You know, 15 years later and is like, hey, there are all these other HR processes. I'm gonna go build a company around that called PeopleSoft. And then he gets acquired into Oracle, and he's like, I'm gonna go do this again. Next generation, <laughs> we're gonna go create Workday. Right, and so it's just generation after generation. So you go through function by function whether it's in finance, HR, sales this is when I joined an enterprise software in the mid-90s. There were like hundreds of little Salesforce automation
0: tools. Yeah. And a company called- Salesforce Thamer. the category, not Salesforce the company. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Sales as a function, yeah. I should say. Sales as a function, um, they
1: looked at it. And there's a lot of Salesforce um, tools like a sales rep being able to track their conversations. Mm-hmm. Instead of them writing it down in a notebook, now they were gonna store it in a in a little tool on on their giant desktop, yeah, <laughs> which is what most people had back then. Out of that emerged a company called Siebel. Siebel became a multi-billion dollar revenue company, and then you know a guy over uh, down the road uh, named Mark Benioff saw what they were doing and said, hey, how about if I do that, but I'm gonna do it as a rented thing from my own data centers and they won't have to worry about it anymore, and then we'll call that salesforce.com. And so you build another multi-billion dollar revenue company, huh. and then you get to marketing. And then you're like, okay, so who? What are the multi-billion dollar revenue companies in the marketing function of business? You could certainly say Google, Facebook, right, in terms of advertising dollars. Yep. You know, first one to go down, by the way, biggest line item in marketing spends advertising. Sure. Not surprising to me that that's the one that went out first. And it's sort of like the HR one. You're like, okay, so what about all the other marketing processes? And so you have lots of companies that have been Going down that path, Exact Targets, Responses, uh, Marketo, HubSpot, fill in the blank. Yeah. Um, lots of M and A around this activity. Salesforce so buys uh, Exact Target, Oracle buys Responses, and Marketo goes private. And IBM buys Silverpop, and it, so this you know Adobe has picked up a bunch of assets, and so it's not lost on people that this is where the the next major multi billion dollar enterprise software companies will come from. Um, we just think there's a great opportunity um, over a decade-long journey to go create to create the equivalent.
0: Well, it's cool that you're paying attention to trends outside of marketing to see you know how is this market moving yeah, in similar I, patterns. Are there certain books that you've read or um, people you've talked to that have, have kind of instilled this interest uh, and knowledge in the history of software? You know, I, uh, I've been blessed to
1: have had great mentors. My first. CEO and and um, mentor the company I joined straight out of college was called Trilogy and um, the founder CEO there a guy named Joe LeMond uh, a brilliant businessman uh, best software operating man uh, executive I've ever ever seen mm-hmm. um, by far and um, why what made what made him such a good uh, operator uh, <laughs> I'll come that that would be a long conversation sure, myself, sure. but he he uh but he was a he was a student of history he. Uh, of in a student of enterprise software history, okay. knew a lot, and so when we were, you know, 21 years old coming into enterprise software in the mid 90s, 1995, um, he would give us talks, lectures on, let me tell you about the history of these other companies that came before us, and that's really cool. And so I've you know I've always had that great luxury um, of uh, of learning from. Software leaders generations uh, uh, ago that would then explain what happened before and what they think is going to happen next, and then you live through the rest of it, and you start to kind of form your form your opinion. But you know things that uh, uh, made made Joe a distinctive uh, software operator. I think he was he's all and I say businessman in particular because Joe always had a great quote, and I hope this is one that many of your listeners will take to heart, uh, which was um, smear profitability is a choice; it is not an outcome." Hmm. And uh, he was incredibly disciplined about building a, a great business. And um, I thought it was all about just user growth at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, this, and that is some of the differences in the way that um, software and tech companies have been built. And, you know, look, so there are certain situations where I guess user growth um, and eyeballs matter if it's going to get monetized via an ad model. Maybe that's the right approach. Um, in traditional enterprise software businesses, you um, keeping your eye on your acquisition costs sales and marketing spend relative to your profitability and not burning a ton of cash in that process is just good business it's just you know is it a more conservative way to build a business one might say yes i'll tell you i saw I've, I've seen lots of people do that very very successfully and what that allows you to do if you've been through a couple cycles you know you, i don't know how many of the of your listeners went through the, the great recession of 2008, or were there for the dot-com bust in 2000, or two two 2001, you gotta be able to weather those cycles. That's not a, that's, those aren't uh, ifs, those are whens. Yep. When is the next one, and is your business prepared to withstand that? You know, I had uh, one of the guys on, on Joe's team, a mentor, he was a CFO, and he said, you know, Samir, building businesses is really hard. <laughs> we will make mistakes, um, lots of mistakes, because you're, you're in a world of unknowns. Your, your listenership, I'm sure, will relate to that. Uh, he said, there's only one mistake in business you cannot come back from. Do you know what that is? And I thought long and hard, and I said, what is the one mistake in business you cannot recover from? I couldn't think of it, and he said, running out of cash. <laughs> Every other mistake you make, you can fix, truly. Yeah. But you run out of cash, and it's game over. Cash is king. Cash is king. And so anyways, uh, I learned a lot of de- great lessons uh, from, from Joe and my trilogy days uh, and, and many mentors uh, subsequent to that. But, but anyways, that's where the, the history
0: of enterprise software and that yeah. passion
1: came, came
0: from Joe. Well, I think that's fascinating. Do you have a, do you have a favorite history book? It doesn't even have to be about software. Oh. or documentary or see. oh see yeah, I love them all yeah you know, like some of the like the Ken Burns
1: documentaries Those are, uh, amazing. are awesome I love uh, uh, you know I, I, I do I love reading the stories of um, um, leaders and um, like biographies of various kinds mm-hmm. you know so like one I'm, I'm reading right now that I highly recommend to people I haven't even quite finished it yet though. I've got a couple more chapters is uh Shoe Dog um, yes, the, the memoir of, of Phil Knight I right. of that all of, of those are just great they're, they're just instructive yeah. right? you hear from people who have been fortunate to have accomplished great things and I think that anyone in the, one of the things by the way that I love in reading those histories is that the best among them will invariably talk about how they were fortunate that these other external factors uh all came together in a confluence of events that they couldn't have orchestrated themselves. They were outside of their control, but thank goodness that they did, because it was a platform for us to go and accomplish X, Y, and Z. um, There's a deep humility that I find in reading the bios of the greatest leaders, because they all recognize
0: it wasn't just them. (laughs) As great of a leader as they were, it wasn't them. Why else do you think it's important to be humble, whether you're a leader or a a teammate or, um, an investor. Well, you know, I, gosh, I tell you, I think
1: um, uh, with experience, I think life humbles us all. Sure. Um, we find uh, we will all all hit challenges, personal or professional, that you you realize how um, how little you do control, um, how things do uh, are, are outside of your control, how sometimes um, despite best efforts, things won't play out your way. I think that the humility that, that comes with that is an important recognition, I think, one, for sanity. Frankly, you know, I was a, I when I did my first startup, I was as a CEO of a 20-, 30-person company that later got acquired, but, boy, I tell you, there were some dark days in the middle of that, of that effort, and it was really important um, to not internalize that as, I suck, I'm failing, right? And because and you feel that way, and I'm, and I'm sure your listeners... That have been started or are or have been startup um, CEOs and founders will will relate to this. Uh, it's, it it can it can lead to depression. It can lead to scary places. And you've got to have a humility to understand your place in all this. Yeah, you're you're trying to create change in a world of chaos. Um, lots of things that you don't control. So anyway, so I think that's one dimension to the humility that I think is helpful for for a CEO founder. Another is just I do I believe it engenders. Um, the right kind of culture and team dynamics uh, at least for, for me for and this is a personal choice you know people have different personalities there's no one right way to build culture there's no one right way to build a company um, uh, for for me like at Centgrid you know the, the humble H is literally built into our value system we call them the four H's uh, happy hungry humble and honest are the, our four H's and I think our humble H as a company frankly is the most distinctive characteristic of the company of all the people that we hire into the company and um, I think they appreciate that uh, they're leaders from the CEO to the executive team to the senior, you know, the VPs and the senior directors that everyone understands that we actually are there to serve them that the individual employees of our company, 350 of them you know, there are probably 20 or 30 of us that are what I describe as we're not at the top of the org chart. We're at the bottom of the pyramid, right? We're, we're there to support them doing their best work. That's, That's an we interesting have, reframe. We, we have to, you know, it's, uh, and, uh, I can't remember the name of the book offhand now, but the concept of servant leadership yep. is... It might just
0: be called servant leadership. Maybe that is yeah. the name of the book,
1: but, but that concept is very powerful and I think I think is the right way for leaders... again. For me, works, it for works for me. Yeah, uh, to think about um, your job and your role is, you know, you got to have, you know, at the bottom, you got to have the rudder, uh, the, the or, the you know, you're you're steering. You got to make sure you're pointing pointing the ship into the right into the right markets. You're making the, the strategic decisions. You're making sure you got the right financing. You're not going to run out of cash. You're building the right unit economic model. All those things are, are on you as as the leadership team, but. Um, But the people that deal with the real work every day in your company are the people that are picking up the phone and dealing with an unhappy customer on a support call. It's the sales rep that's got a quota to hit to bring in new customers. It's the the marketing team that's got to go get the word out about, hey, we got a new product and the world doesn't know that yet. They're the ones who do the real work of the company every day. And our job's got to be, how do we remove obstacles that get in their way? How do we support them? How do we get them the resources they need, the work environment they need, the culture that they want to be in, so that they can go and have a career high, so they can go do their best work. So if you do that as a leader, the rest of the shit takes care of itself, right? It's you know the Bill Walsh, you know great football quote. Coach said the scoreboard will take care of itself if you do <laughs> those types of things. You yep. know if you have great in- excellence at the individual level, that will lead to excellence at the team level, that will lead to excellence at the program level, and that's. I think that is every bit as true in business as it is in sports.
0: I, I like the focus and intention around the team. I, yeah. I imagine um in some of those moments when you mentioned some of your darker days in that early yeah. startup 20 to 30 people. Yeah um was there a can you remember a specific moment when you were humbled and maybe uh, a little less happy <laughs> yeah, yeah. in that first startup? Oh for sure. Uh you
1: know, we were looking at um, uh, Yeah, the specific example we were is two thousand seven. Companies taken off, new customers signed. Like you know, we had come out of the gates. New customers were adopting quickly. Lots of interest from partners and strategics around what we were doing. We were building this disruptive technology. This is back in the virtualization software um, market, and uh, things everything was up and right. Just. Everything works exactly as we had planned. You know, we're hitting our numbers. Everything's feeling great and uh, we're in negotiations. um, Meet like literally nine months in to get acquired by a company that um, could give us incredible distribution. Uh, And it's the summer of 2008 and we're negotiating the deal and for anybody who remembers their history, back to history, we'll remember Lehman Brothers happening in September of 08 And, um, and everything falls apart. Now, we had built our plan, assuming you know, we, we were then investing. That because contingency wasn't built into the plan. I had forgotten <laughs> Joe's very important lesson. Yep. I hadn't internalized it deeply enough. And so all of a sudden now we're in a financing crunch of because it was the Great we Recession. We had run out of cash. And we, and we couldn't, you know, like, well, we still had enough because you know, I learned it enough to not, it wasn't gonna happen in the next few months, but it was gonna happen in the next you know, nine to 12 if we didn't come up with a solution. That's scary, and, and it was a. It was a, those were dark days because you you know again having lived through the dot com bust in two thousand one two thousand two I knew when Lehman happened and this in the fall of 8 eight I'm like oh this is not going to be short lived this is not that we're going to be in this for a while I got to figure out an answer and it wasn't clear what the answer was going to be we figured out an answer it worked it ended up working out
0: great but but well, talk to me about that because yeah. a lot of times you 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 see. Point A, yeah. scared, humbled, yeah. and point B, happy we found an answer and a solution. Yeah, What, what were some of the mental games that you <laughs> did with yourself as an operator yeah. to, to get out of that? Well, you know, uh, it's
1: the, you know, the two things you have to do, I think, in, in a situation like that that we, we were fortunate enough to be able to execute. One was you get very disciplined on your costs and your spend and everything about that, which we did. Um, and then the other is you get very creative. And you try to find okay, what else can, what what else could we do? There's no VC in the fall of two thousand eight that was going to fund anything. <laughs> right, like there's no there. The VC market's shut down. The doors are closed. And so now you got to figure out how else you're going to go do it. Um, you can drive your co- you know cost containment going to help you drive towards uh, a cash flow neutral situation, but now you're not going to get there overnight um, unless you're willing to to do something really dramatic. Which we still believed in the business, so we weren't. Um, and in our case, uh, we got creative. So in our case, we went back to the strategic acquirer we were talking to and said, hey, we both want to get married. We can't get married now, so let's get engaged. Mm. And our need right now is capital. Your need remains interest in our product and technology. Instead of a marriage, we'll do a, a, a prepaid royalty-based OEM software deal. You can white label our product and send it through your distribution channels every time you do, uh, but you're going to give us capital up front, and then we'll decrement um, how the the prepayment. Oh, that, that is creative. Perspective. So you get you get creative, you yeah. figure out ways of doing it, but um, but there but it's not easy. And I'll tell you, in between the you know, I just summarized that in three minutes. There's probably about six months, nine months, of. Um, of pain (laughs) and dark days around yeah it felt good to get out of the valley it did it did and i'll tell you when when i talk about life humbling you it makes you appreciate the good times all the more yep that much happier that much happier that much happier so when things are you know uh everything is up and to the right you're like wow this is really special i'm gonna enjoy this yeah because you know that there's possibility is always around the corner so you better keep uh, it, it keeps you both enjoying it, and it keeps you with a healthy bit of paranoia to make sure that you're looking for what could be around the corner uh,
0: this time that I wasn't prepared for the last time. Well, I'm sure that your experience and your studying of history um, and everything you've done to prepare yourself for this particular venture that you're leading is has a lot to do with CentGrid being up and to the right.
1: Well, I, I, I appreciate that. I, I, I wish I, I I would say the the company. I, I this is one I feel fortunate to have joined. Yep. Um, uh, a company that had so many of the fundamentals right long before I got here. What were the fundamentals that they had right? Uh, the two that I would focus on, I would say, are um, the business model slash uh, unit economics. Okay. Uh, and the two and the second one is the culture. So, um, uh, and these are two things that I remember when I when I was. Uh, Doing diligence on whether or not I should join the company because when you do, you know, when you become the CEO of a company like this, as you as you know, for any time you're in that CEO spot, uh, it becomes personal. It becomes a thing that you're taking on. So you do a lot of homework before you sign yeah, up sure. for that. Um, and uh, I fell in love with SendGrid with head and heart. Um, the head on the analytically, the the business yeah. was extraordinary. Uh, the 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 thing that it makes. The model, are remarkable one. Of course, it's it's a SaaS-based business, which is dramatically better than the enterprise software perpetual li- uh, license and maintenance model of, of what I grew up in for the first 20 years. So, yeah. so that was an improvement unto itself. But but moreover, even better than that, um, Syngrid's business model enjoys uh, a couple aspects of it that solve for the biggest problems of most SaaS companies. Hmm. So, most SaaS companies struggle with two two challenges. One is CAC, your customer acquisition costs. The percent of your revenue that you have to spend in sales and marketing is oftentimes half, like 50%. Some some more, maybe some a little bit less, but that's probably a, you know, 40, 40 to 50% is probably the median spend. At least uh, for the healthy companies. For those healthy companies. Yeah. And um, and that leads to a very difficult situation because now it's hard to be profitable. If you're spending that much in sales and marketing, uh, you know, that, that, that's a tough place. Um, uh, the second problem that most SaaS companies wrestle with is uh, a leaky bucket problem. Tell me about so, that. So, uh, on the sales and marketing problem, and I'll explain how SendGrid's different on both of those dimensions. So, on the, on the CAC and the sales and marketing spend, SendGrid is spending probably half of what the average SaaS company does and it's bec- in sales and marketing. Yeah. And it's because our model is a self service one. Like our developers and now even our marketers, they come and find our solution.
0: They've got a pain point. They're out searching for a solution. Exactly. You guys are one of the first in that market yep. to really service that. That's right.
1: And they, So they come and find us. We're not doing expensive field sales organizations, six to 12 month sales cycles, and you know, all the traditional stuff that, and that even SaaS companies today selling into the enterprise often deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're serving SMB mid-market, um, we don't. So our, our costs are dramatically lower. Um, and so that allows us to be, um, on a, uh, uh, allow us to achieve profitability at a very early stage relative to most SaaS companies. Um, on the, the second one, that leaky bucket problem. Uh, the leaky bucket problem for a SaaS company is if, if you take any given cohort, say I signed up this many customers in the month of January of 2016, mm-hmm. a year later, in January 2017, the metrics that most SaaS companies would look at is a what percentage of those accounts logos are still with me, and how many have churned? Yeah, and then of those that are still there, how much are they spending with us relative to how much they were spending with us a year prior? Um, the leaky bucket problem is that on a dollar basis, most SaaS companies are making a little bit less from that cohort a year later, and so then what you're trying to do is you're trying to either cross sell them or upsell them or get them to. Expand in some way to get it back to break even, because otherwise the only way to make up for that leaky bucket is I just have to keep spending more in sales and marketing to get more people into the top of the bucket, right? To make up for what's fallen out of the bottom of the bucket. Um, Sendgrid, by virtue of a transaction-based pricing model, doesn't have uh, the same challenge. Yeah, because those customers we do—we have plenty of people customers who leave the system either because we ask them to. Back to my original. Termination of bad senders comment um, or because uh, you know their startup doesn't work out or they get merged or acquired and they're using some other thing etc but those who stay are sending so much more in volume and they're thus paying us more because our pricing is tied to how much they're paying or how much they're sending that we actually on a dollar basis are making more not less That's a beautiful thing. And that is a beautiful thing. So you have efficient acquisition with an inherent growth vehicle for your cohort. It just builds a, there's an inherent growth model built into the
0: business. Well, if they're using your email marketing tools, your product is actually helping them spend more money with you. Absolutely. By helping them grow as a company. Absolutely. Then sending more transactional emails. And it's this great virtuous cycle. And so, so kind of analytically, I love the business. Yeah.
1: I love the business model. And that was right long before I got here. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm very, you know, grateful to our founders and the, um, the initial management team that took the company from 2 million in revenue to 40 when I joined. Yeah. Um, they did an extraordinary job of those things. The other thing they got incredibly right, which I was happy to join. And and frankly, I wouldn't have come to the company if I didn't so deeply believe, um, in the culture. And that's the heart. And that's the heart part. Head and heart. You know, I fell in love with, I fell in, literally fell in love with the company because of those four values, those those H's—happy, yeah. hungry, humble, and honest—each of those resonated with me. We were talking about mentors earlier. I had a, a mentor uh, at Citrix, uh, the company I was at just before I joined uh, SendGrid. Who's the CEO there? Named Mark Templeton, and Mark was a deeply—he's extraordinary business leader. He take built a business from fifty million in revenue to a two and a half three billion dollar company over the span wow. of two decades. Like, and, ex- and there are so few. Human beings on the planet who can scale through all the different challenges that occur, dip through those different life cycles. So an incredible businessman, an incredible leader, uh, but also just an incredible human being. And uh, he was a deeply humble person. Hmm. Uh, and I'll never forget the you know the example that always were just is so stark in my mind was, um, and he would never even probably remember this, but we were at our uh, annual cu- uh, customer event. You know, five thousand people come in to hear about the future of the company and. We have our customer advisory board, you know, the top CEOs of Fortune 500 companies that we're serving, and he's standing at the buffet line at lunch, handing them their plates as they're coming through the line. And he never had to say what was obvious to everybody, which was, I am here to serve you. Well, not just, you know, physically, metaphorically, in every way, we are here to serve you as customers. And that humility permeated our company This is, by the way, you know, Citrix was a 7,000-person company at the time. Yeah. It permeated the company, and I I assure you that the company's success was in no small part due to that culture and Mm -hmm. channel partners and customers wanting Citrix to be successful because they appreciated the humility. It was the antithesis of so many other tech software companies who thought it was all about them. Yeah. And that it was about their growth and what a rocket ship they were and... It wasn't about serving the customer. So anyways, these, these values that, that um, uh, my predecessor and the founding management team imbued in the, into this company just deeply resonated with me. I saw the power of how uh, humble H can matter to a business and to a, a company that I wanted to work at. How do
0: you try to teach or cultivate or empower the leaders at Sangria to be more humble? Uh, we talk about it a lot, we talk it. <laughs> and it sounds funny. Well, you brought it up before you even brought up the, the four H's. So yeah, you know, it's it, it,
1: it's just so so core to what we do. I think um, uh, it's it gets so baked in from everything in our interviewing process. We have people that are assigned to interview for each of the H's, um, and so we have questions that we'll try to suss out: um, are are they our kind of humble age or not? When they're describing their accomplishments off of their resume, is it I or was it we? Just, and literally just the pronoun difference. Yeah. As they're describing their achievements tells you a lot about their mindset yep. <laughs> of where they, where they are. Um, we hand out uh, at our monthly meetings, uh, all-hands meetings, uh, our 4-H awards. And the 4-H awards are... Um, the the origins of them are peers nominating their their peers of people that they believe are uh, exhibiting those 4H values, and we do and they do we do videos of the nominations of the people that are saying hey you know Carolyn exhibited let me tell you an example of how Carolyn exhibited our 4Hs and I just love working with her for these reasons and this is she's uh, has been a great steward of our culture and. And we play those videos for the entire company to see. And so they realize this isn't lip service. Like, we believe in these values deeply. We interview against them. We celebrate them. We use them in, in language in our meetings. Yeah. We will fire against them. Like, you know, one of the things in the humble age that's hard is you, we lo- will lose very talented people. Who are not humble H. There are very, very talented. talented people in the software industry that don't have the humble age. And they, you know, they're very talented, and frankly, they know it. Yeah. And they know it, and that's a yeah. hard thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, we've had some very, very talented people that it's like Oregon rejection
0: inside of SendGrid. They're like, Yeah, yep. No, this is just not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but well, it probably equally doesn't work for you as it doesn't work. That's right, yeah. and
1: that, and by the way, that is the key for all of, all your listeners. I believe around around culture uh, is that it has to have some edge to it. If the culture you have defined would be awesome and amazing for everyone you know, then it's motherhood and apple pie. You've put no edge around it. You haven't carved out a culture that is distinctive, and you can't think of a company that is world class that doesn't have a distinctive culture. Think, of, think about Apple's culture. Yeah. Think about Amazon's culture. Think about Nike's culture. Yeah. Those are cultures that are distinctive, and frankly, there are lots of people who would hate them. Polarizing. Very polarizing. Yeah. And believe me, I know very lots and lots of very talented software professionals who would hate working at SendGrid. It would be seventh hell for and, them. And that's good. Yeah. Because that means there's a self-selection mechanism towards this is the kind of environment we want to be in. And I think that's that's usually important uh, to set up in, in any, any culture you're, you're building.
0: Well, it's clear you've got a powerful culture and just a crazy momentum behind what you're doing. What's next for you and, and, and what's next for Sanctuary? I'll, I'll ask the question that I'm sure you get asked in every interview, but um, what are you most excited about right now? Uh, I, I am most
1: excited about the fact that um, we are hitting on all cylinders right now. Yeah. We have... A team that genuinely loves working with each other. You know, I I I describe, like falling in love with it head and heart, uh, the hard part. I, I've been in places where where people view their job as a job and I view and, and their the people they work with are, are coworkers or colleagues. And I've been in places where people come in and view their work as a joy and the people they work with as teammates. And friends, and I'll tell you the difference between A and B. <laughs> Night and day. Night and day. <laughs> yep. Um, so I love that we have, that is um, that is working and it is scaling. And I'll tell you, this, that's the hardest part is scaling a culture. Um, and so far, you know, we're scaling that culture. I'm really excited and proud of that. Mm-hmm. What What gets me most excited, I guess, is all the things we haven't done yet. You know, like we all these things we're hitting on all these cylinders, and yet. I wake up every morning jumping out of bed thinking about the other
0: eight things we can go do. Man, we got to go faster. Yeah, <laughs> And that's I get fired up. I do. There's lots we can go do still. And the, and the focus, there are eight other things you can do in that day. Yeah. And as an executive, uh, I, I think I'd almost like to close on this. Get an idea of how you're starting your day and plotting your day because you could do eight different things, yeah. but you probably mm-hmm. can only do a handful yeah. if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you going through that? That process and how, how might some of our listeners, whether they're a CEO or not. Yeah. By the way, this is this was a um, uh, a, a, a tip that
1: another mentor of mine, uh, who's actually currently a a board member, my first boss out of college is now one of our VCs. That's so pretty that's cool. That's Pretty great. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I remember you know very in my early twenties as a the first product manager of the software company, and. Mm-hmm. Same thing, Even then, like in any role, you're, there's
0: always more you can do. How do you prioritize your time? That's the most important thing that you can do. I appreciate you sharing that because uh, from afar, uh, sometimes the uh, executive uh, at the top of the mountain, uh, it seems like they got it all together and, and they got it all figured <laughs> out. Uh, so I, I, I also struggle with that, but on a much smaller scale, as we're, we're still a small company. But yeah. uh, it's good to hear that there's some similarities in terms of focus. Honestly, it's all the same.
1: I'm not kidding. From when you're an individual contributor and 22 years old to when you're an executive of a company is how do I focus on the highest impact things that I can do for my role? And, and making sure you're doing that and spending your time in those places, saying no to the stuff that isn't that is... Uh, is is. That is true in every stage in your career, and it doesn't go away <laughs> when you're when you're
0: leading the company, big or small. It's all the same. So, important to uh, build that habit now. Absolutely. And just anybody, get better at it. Well, needs. thank you, Samir, so much for taking the time to connect and share your story uh, personally, thank and you. then the story of Sandra as well. It's, it's pretty exciting. Thank you, Matt. I love the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. That's it for this week's conversation with Samir Dalakia at SendGrid. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You know, for me, it not only inspired a greater focus on our email communications at Verge and how we're actually making those particularly special for powder keg in the verge communities you'll probably be seeing some of this but it also helped us talk more as a team about our core values at verge you know ours are global abundant and happy we want to help build global entrepreneurs abundant entrepreneurs happy entrepreneurs with the podcast here at powder keg this particular conversation has also inspired a greater focus on the business economics our own particular business economics i'm sure it has for yours as well i found that particular part of the conversation. Really, really interesting. But I'm curious, you know, what did you get out of this conversation? Please reach out to me or even reach out to Samir directly and let him know. Uh, On Twitter, it would be a great place to do that. He's just at S.P. Dolakia. That's S.P. as in Paul. Dolakia, which is D as in dog. H.O.L.A.K. I A. Make sure you hit him up, and let him know what you learned from this conversation, or if you have any follow-up questions. Twitter's a great place to continue the conversation, and I hope to see you there. I just wanted to remind you real quick that Powderkeg is presented by Verge, which is a network of local communities with global reach for tech entrepreneurs, investors, and top talent growing companies beyond Silicon Valley. We have a ton of free resources for starting and growing your business at VergeHQ.com. We also host several events every month around the country. So check us out and see where we're at. I would love to link up with you in person, learn a little bit more about what you're working on and how we can help. So again, that's VergeHQ.com. And of course, you can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at Hunkler, that's at H-U-N-C-K, I appreciate all of your feedback, all the conversation and dialogue there. Thank you so much for continuing to give great feedback, great ideas for future shows. And of course, let me know how I can help. I want to help you. I want to help your business. And I want to help make this podcast better and better so that, again, we're helping more and more people the more interviews we do, the more episodes we have. Thank you so much for tuning in.